I've recently discovered why it's so difficult for me to get up in the morning and get out of bed. When my alarm clock beckons and, and I awake, I'm surrounded by a warm, comfortable bed with soft pillows. But my bed's not only comfortable, my bed is safe. It's in that bed that I feel secure, I feel protected, and I don't want to get out of bed because I know that when I step out, I will be stepping out into a cruel world that awaits me, and once my feet hit the cold, hard ground, that there will be no turning back. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. See, I don't need to tell you that we live in a world full of danger and violence. You don't have to look hard to see the presence of violence in our society. If you've looked in a newspaper or watched the news, you've heard reports of bombs and beheadings, of wrecks and riots, of assaults and abuse. Sometimes it's enough to make me want to crawl back into bed and shut my eyes. I remember the first time that I felt vulnerable in a violent world. I was 13 years old and the year was 2001. So I went to school that day and watched the news and saw what was happening in New York and in D.C. I felt the effects of violence. I saw the effects of violence, but even then that day the violence felt distant. It felt like it was taking place far away and I was only experiencing it through the lens of a camera or a picture on a page. Although the violence was real, it felt far away. I also remember the first time that I felt the effects of violence up close and personal. I was a senior, a senior in high school, and my class, I was in uh, human anatomy and physiology. And that year, we took a class field trip to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to see a live autopsy being performed. Now, I had seen CSI, but I didn't know what to expect when I actually got in there, and I didn't know how I would react and as we walked in, the first autopsy that we saw performed was of a man who had been shot and killed. After that one was completed, the second one we watched was of a man who had killed another one in an automobile accident because he was driving under the influence. I was shocked and confused because this wasn't CSI. They weren't going to cut the scene. These people weren't going to get up, walk out, and go home all happy and well because these were live people and this was real life. And the people that I saw that day were real flesh and blood, and their life was violently snatched from their hands. What I learned that day was not about the human body. What I learned about that day was the very real effects of violence in our world. But even then, as I sat there and, and I watched and I saw the effects and had seen what had happened with my own two eyes. It's right in front of me. Even then, the violence still kind of felt distant because it hadn't happened to me or someone I loved. One question that came to my mind from that field trip is, why do people do this to one another? How are people capable of such violence? I thought it was just easy to decide that I am not going to do this to anyone or anything, that I was incapable of doing something like that. Or was I? Perhaps probably the time I felt the effects of violence the most was in the basement of my house one day when my brother and I was playing. He was being annoying because he was my younger brother. And I've, he had taken something of mine and he wouldn't give it back. And I tried persuading him, but it didn't work. I tried threatening him that I would go to mom and dad, but that didn't 
work, and I was bigger, and I was going to have my way, so I, so I acted. I drew my fist back, and I punched him. But this wasn't the typical punch that brothers throw at one another when they're just fighting or wrestling. No, I was furious, and I wanted it to hurt, and it did. But what I didn't realize is how much it would also hurt me in the process. In the place in my stomach where that rage had reared its ugly head, it was replaced by a grand feeling of regret. I had hurt my brother, and in the process I realized that I too was capable of violence. Violence pervades the whole world. And it seems that today people are growing more and more uncomfortable with the violence that is in our world. In fact, Barna recently did a survey in which they found that 47% of people today are more concerned, they're less comfortable with the violence in the world than they were 10 years ago. So about half the population in the United States realizes that we are living in a world that is growing increasingly violent and they want to do something about it. We want to stop violence because we want peace. Now, I have a confession to make it. This has been the most difficult sermon I've ever had to preach in my life. At first, I thought it was easy. You know, Chris was telling me that I would be preaching on violence. I'm against violence. If I took a survey and a poll in here, pretty much everyone would raise their hands and say that they were against violence too. That should be an easy sermon to preach when everyone's in agreement. I would rather not be Eric last Sunday who had to walk into a room full of people with smartphones, tablets, and computers probably on their person and tell them that they needed to unplug and disconnect from that. That sounds like a difficult sermon. I have the easy topic. But then I began to think about violence. And that led to the question, what exactly is violence? I know it seems silly to ask what is violence, but how do we define it? The World Health Organization defines it this way. Violence is the intentional use of physical force or power threatened or actual against oneself or another person or against a group or a community which either results in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment, or deprivation. Or put a little bit more simply, violence is a force that hurts or damages. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized how complicated the issue of violence actually can be. After all, some sorts of violence we all agree are wrong. We all agree that gang violence is wrong. We all agree that bullying in school is wrong. We all agree that murder is wrong. But what about war? War is certainly violent, right? But is it wrong? What about nuclear weapons? Nuclear weapons are violent, but are they wrong? The death penalty is violent, but is it wrong? And as I thought about all of these issues, if if they weren't complicated enough, then we run into questions about we want to live in a peaceful world. We want to live in a world without violence, but how do we accomplish that? Some people have suggested maybe we need some gun control. That would rid the world of violence. That's not divisive at all. And what about police using force? To what extent can they use violence to make sure everyone else is safe? I don't know if I have an answer to all these questions. I don't know if there is a correct answer to all these questions, but these questions tell me that this is a deeply complex issue that deeply divides our nation, and not only our nation, but our churches. What happens when we bring Jesus into this discussion? 
what would he think about some of these issues? In that same Barna survey that I mentioned earlier, Christians were asked a set of eight questions about how they would answer based on certain situations of violence. And then they were asked another question. They were asked, how would Jesus, how do you think Jesus would answer each one of these questions as well? One of the questions said this, the government should have the option to execute the worst criminals. 40% of practicing Christians said that yes, they agree with that statement that the government should have the option to execute the worst criminals. But when that same group of Christians was asked, what would Jesus do? They said only 5% said Jesus would say the same. Another question was this, acts of violence are sometimes necessary to defend freedom. 47% of Christians answered yes, that sometimes acts of violence are necessary to defend freedom. But when asked what they thought Jesus would say, only 10% said that they thought Jesus would agree. In each of the eight questions, there was a stark contrast between what Christians answered and what they thought Jesus would answer the question. And does that not strike you as odd? In fact, what's interesting is the way that Christians answered the question was actually a lot more like non-Christians. Does it not strike you as odd that Christians who claim to be followers of Christ would differ so drastically in how they would respond to violence? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes some very provocative statements. In chapter 5, he says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and hand your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. In response to this sermon, is it appropriate for Jesus to act this way, but his followers not? In fact, do we believe that Jesus is actually calling us to do this? Is he calling us to actually live out the sermon? And these are questions without easy answers. And that's why I think these Questions demonstrate that Christians are just as confused and just as divided as everyone else in the world. But there is a problem with these types of questions. These types of questions are about issues. And they kind of move the focus away from us. Because we aren't violent people, right? I mean, we like football. We like to play the occasional violent video game. But... Other things like gang violence or, or terrorism, we don't do those type things. We aren't those type of violent people. The violent culture around us is just something that happens to me. It's just something that I happen to live in, but I am not violent. Here's a problem I can't escape. Our culture wouldn't be so violent if we didn't like violence. And this includes me. And this is absolutely essential to realize if we are going to take responsibility for the situation that we find ourselves in. If we think violence is about something that other people do, we will only try to solve what their behavior is rather than getting to the core of the issue, the heart of the matter, why our own hearts cherish violence. And that's what I want to think about. Why do we like violence? And what does liking violence do to me? Now, I realize that not everyone in here likes violence. I do think it is more true than we realize, though, because, first of all, the amount of money that is spent on violence is 
astronomical. I would estimate probably in the billions of dollars because it's one of the main things that we escape to in our lives. And I find it interesting that we escape to violence because for the most part in our lives we don't like pain. We don't like seeing people get hurt. We like to turn our heads away when we see injury, when we see illness, when we see people hurting. We don't want to see it. In fact, violence has been so far removed from our lives that at one point people had to kill what they had to eat. But we've outsourced that. We don't even want that a part of our life anymore. We don't like violence in real life, but yet when we want to be entertained, perhaps the most pervasive theme is violence. Why do we escape to it? What's strange is that violence is a weird thing to enjoy. I mean, fried foods and homemade baked goods, those are delicious, and that's why I want to eat more of them, because they're good. But violence, why do we always escape to it when it hurts? It doesn't make much sense. Tyler Wig Stevenson in an article on violence says that we like violence because it feeds the part of us that wants to live in a world without God. And that is done, it accomplishes this by telling us two myths. The first myth is this, that there is no God. Now for the most part, this myth is subtle, especially in the entertainment we consume. For example, if you've seen the movie the Matrix. It was one of the favorites of my friends and I growing up. And there was one particular scene where Neo is walking into a building and he's strapped from head to toe, fully armed. And he walks into this lobby and he begins to take on about 50 men by himself and one other person. And he and this other person alone kill every single person in that lobby. And I remember watching that scene over and over as I grew up and we enjoyed it. We thought it was cool because the good guys were defeating the bad guys. But what would have happened if, if before he took every shot, before the death blow was struck on every individual, the movie paused? What if the movie paused and went back to the day that that person was born and we saw their life, we saw their family, we saw their friends, we saw their job, we saw their hopes and their dreams when it finally came to that point where the bullet was put into their head? I don't think we would enjoy it. Because we would see these people for who they actually are, a person with a face, with a name, with a story. See, the myth that there is no God believes that people are not made in the image of God, that they are just flesh, that they are just material, that they are just dirt, that they are just meat. Nothing more. People are not garbage. They're not rubbish but spirit-filled individuals made in the image of God. But if our viewing habits are any indicator, then our culture is obsessed with stories of the former. These stories subtly over time tell us that we can do whatever we want with our bodies or with anyone else's. That bodies are just there for our pleasure, our own entertainment. And no, we don't live this way all the time. No, I don't consider myself just meat. No, I don't consider others just meat just a faceless name. But oftentimes when we look out into the world full of violence, it's because we don't actually know the person that we're committing violence against. We don't know their story. We don't know their face. We don't know their name. All they are is a soulless piece of garbage, simply to be used in any way that we please. Wig Stevenson says the second myth is this. It's that of a God without a cross. 
What's the script of almost every action movie? It's that of a good guy being pushed to the brink by some bad guy. And then in the effort to save himself, his family, or the nation, he does anything that polite society wouldn't do to be able to save the day. This is the basic plot of the Bourne movies. It's the basic plot of the movies such as Die Hard. And one scene in particular stands out to me from the movie A Few Good Men. Colonel Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, is uh, being questioned on the stand by Tom Cruise's character. And he makes this statement at the climax of the movie. He says, son, we live in a world with walls. And those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. And who's going to do it? You? My existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. What I find fascinating about this quote is that Colonel Jessup is the villain of the Moody, but yet at this point, most of us find ourselves nodding in agreement. The reason we tend to approve is that this is what most of us believe, that at the end of the day, the only way to live, the only way to survive, the only way to be protected is to threaten violent domination. Most of us today have a wall mentality that the only story that matters in our world is that the person with the biggest army, the biggest guns, or the biggest muscles is the one who prevails. Weakness is not cherished, it is despised. And I have to ask, is that the Christian story? Did Jesus conquer the principalities and powers of this world by killing them, or did he do it by submitting to death on a cross? The problem with this myth of God without a cross as it seems true because violence makes sense in our world. You don't win by being the weakest. You don't win by being the poorest. You don't win unless you can beat everyone back in your path. And unfortunately, this cycle of violence continues. The world has been operating a long time under this assumption, and it is yet to be a peaceful place forever. Because it's operating under this false myth. Because deep down inside, we believe that the way to win the world is not by giving your life, but by conquering it with violent force and power. But that is not the Christian story of how the world was won. Matthew records it this way. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt, knelt in front of him, and they mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him, and they took the staff, and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they were forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross 
if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is our story. The story of the cross. The story of a God who became man and suffered at the hands of evil men and surrendered to death. Jesus had every opportunity to come down from the cross when those insults were being hurled up at him saying, if you are the son of God, come down and we will believe. If there was ever a chance to come down, that was it. He said he could save others, but he can't save himself. Jesus wanted to be able to save himself, but he didn't come off the cross. He could have, like the song we sing goes, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world, but he didn't. He trusted God, he stayed on the cross, and he died. God died for us. And that is how peace was made. Peace wasn't made by the Son of God stepping off of the cross and defeating his enemies and establishing peace, because if that would have happened, none of us would be here this morning, because as Paul says, all of us were at one point enemies of God. It was because Jesus stayed on the cross that death was defeated. It's because Jesus stayed on the cross that peace was achieved and our forgiveness of sins was given. A cross is how the world was won. It wasn't by power or force that death was conquered, but by submission. And that is our story. And if this is our story, how are we to live? I think the reason that Christians are so conflicted about issues of violence is because we are conflicted over what is our main story. What story are we trying to live out? Do we believe that violence and power will actually win the day? Or do we believe that taking up our cross and following Jesus will lead to victory? Issues of violence are tough to wade through. From the very beginning of the church, they have argued over these issues of war and violence, to participate or not. The issues have always been muddy, they've always been murky, and they've always taken both sides. This is a very real issue that we wrestle with every single day. But what do we do when our defining story is mocked by the world? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Our story the one that defines us, the one that saves us, the one that brings peace is foolishness to a world that thinks it can be won by power and might. So what do we do when our story is mocked? The same thing Jesus did. We pick up our cross and we follow. 
trusting the whole time that God will be with us, that he has us, and that he will lift us up. How this will look, I'm not always sure. But I know that God has called each one of us to a cross. And I know that that's where we must go. Scott McKnight, in a book on the Sermon on the Mount, tells the story of a man named Jared McKenna. Jared was on his way home from work one day when he was mugged by a man in a tracksuit. Earlier that morning, he had been reading about Martin Luther King Jr. and the early church and how they argued over this issue of nonviolence. And he decided in that moment that he was going to try to find a way of peace because he knew that he couldn't run away. He knew he would be overtaken. He knew he couldn't fight back because he would be defeated. So in that moment, he thought, how can I achieve peace in this moment of violence? So he reached into his back pocket. He pulled out his wallet. He took out all the money he had, and he reached out his hand. The man quickly took it. With his empty hand, he said, hi, my name's Jared. The man kind of grunted and said, James. And Jared was kind of confused. He said, no, I said my name was Jared. And goes, no, my name is James. So Jared was kind of laughed that off a little bit. And he saw that the man was dirty. He saw that he was hungry. And he said, would you like to come over for dinner? Would you like to come take a shower? And would you like me to find you a place to sleep tonight? James didn't answer. So Jared reached into his backpack and he pulled out a Bible and he handed it to him. He said, well, if you change your mind, my number is in here. James took it from him and he says, why are you giving me a Bible? Do you think I'm going to hell? Jared kind of laughed and softly said to him, James, if it weren't for Jesus, we'd all be going to hell. At that moment, James had a partner who ran by and yelled at him to come along. And as they were running away, Jared watched them as the partner reached above her head with a backpack and said, I got a backpack. And as he watched James run away, James lifted the Bible above his head and said, I have a Bible. That was a moment of peace. A moment of reaching out and finding a name. A moment of seeing this violent situation and seeing it not as an opportunity to perpetuate violence, but seeing this as an opportunity that I can be reconciled, that I can see an enemy, that I can see someone who is threatening me, and I can actually achieve reconciliation in this moment. It took trust. It took courage. And we are constantly in a battle for our hearts. We need to be careful about how we entertain ourselves because when we allow ourselves to be shaped by ways that delight in violence even if it is make-believe we resist being formed more completely into the image of Jesus and finally what story will we live out do we believe in the myths of violence that there is no God and that the way of God is without a cross or do we believe that every individual in the world is made in the image of God that they are enemies to be reached out to and prayed for or they are people to be served people to be loved? Do we believe that we are actually going to live the story where we take up our cross and achieve victory? Let's sing. When peace like a river attendeth my way